0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Flightcast. This is an aviation podcast inspired by the mobile flight simulator, Infinite Flight. Joining me in the Flightcast virtual recording booth, as always, is Mr. Mark Denton, Skyhawk Heavy. Hey, Mark. Hey, buddy, what's going on? Man, I will be honest, I'm a wreck. You sound like it. (laughs) I was on my grandfather's roof all day. And let's be clear, my job on a day-to-day basis uh, is not manual labor. And so we were up there, and it was hot, and we tore apart his shingles and reshingled. And man, there was pollen aplenty, and I'm just, my body is sore. My allergies are in overdrive and uh your head's probably pounding as well well i tried to stay hydrated so my head doesn't feel too bad but uh man i'm gonna be hurting unit tomorrow
1: yep the uh yeah i um i've never shingled a roof uh but have done some construction in the past of course the only manual labor now that i do is every time i stand up so i mean that's or get, Pretty much in, my get exercise in and out of the truck, basis. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's cardio workout right there.
0: Oh, man. Well, um, Mark, why don't we welcome today's guests?
1: I think that's a great idea.
0: Yeah. To do that, I just wanted to read a snippet from the short bio that they sent me as an introduction. Okay. Aviation has shaped Alaska. It's more than airplanes. It's our Pony Express bringing food, fuel, medicine, and ATVs to remote villages. It's confident men and women in Ray-Bans and bomber jackets, flying aircraft oftentimes manufactured when their grandparents were toddlers. The sound of an airplane overhead reassures us of our lifeline to safety, identity, and freedom. The aviation art of Bob Thompson and John Hume portrays the mystique of flying in Alaska, from bush planes to Cold War bombers throughout the history of the last frontier. Their goal is to capture that part of Alaska that seems, for good reason, wild and intriguing, and draws people from everywhere for a taste of it. Today, we're happy to welcome from their offices in Anchorage, Alaska, aviation artists Bob Thompson and John Hume. Guys, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah welcome on. Guys, you you both seem to have, from what I've read, a very rich history in aviation. Uh, Bob, your family seems to be made up almost entirely of pilots, it would seem. Uh, Are either of you pilots?
2: Uh, No, we're both kind of wannabes. Yeah, I've uh, always wanted to be since I was a little kid and never had the uh, circumstances turn right to... uh, make the plunge. So as far as my household goes, I always say that my my oldest son is a pilot. He flies for a company called Ryanair in Western Alaska. And my, my middle son is uh, in flight school right now. But my, my standard response to that is I can only afford one, one pilot in the, in the house at a time. And it's not my turn yet.
0: (laughs) Right. So, but it's one of you um, that has uh, uh, an airplane in the family that's kind of been passed down. Isn't that correct?
2: Yes, uh, we have a 150 that's been kind of passed around. It's my father-in-law bought it years ago and it's for the grandkids to learn how to fly in. So it's sitting over at Merrill Field and and it uh it gets a lot of hands on the yoke over there. So
0: That's it's, pretty it's awesome.
2: Yeah.
3: But it it's it's more than that. It's been uh it's been passed through not just Bob's family, but uncles and aunts and uh their children.
2: Yeah, sure. So right. it's 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 okay. had probably four or five generations pass through the seat. So. Yeah, my father-in-law has eight kids, and of the three boys, they're all commercial pilots, and two of the daughters, and everybody is involved in aviation in some, some form, and so there's lots of nieces and nephews and cousins, and it's had a lot of people and a lot of pilots trained in it and building their time.
0: Mark, where's my 150?
1: Um, It's still sitting on the ramp with the for sale sign on it.
0: <laughs> I guess so. Uh <laughs> Before we continue, guys, is there a, a window or a door or something to the outside open?
2: No. It's
3: closed. I closed it earlier. There is a little bit of a – it's quite windy outside right
0: now. Oh, so that's it, what I'm hearing. Okay. Well, nothing you can do about that. No problem. They're in
3: Alaska, Jason.
0: I know. And that's – yes. So
3: <laughs> – You can't fly without wind.
0: Yeah. That's right. And and you know what? I won't even cut that out of the show because I think that's uh, – <laughs> mark mark reminding me that they're in alaska is a good a good point yeah so (laughs) neither
1: if you hear a bear in the background just you know go with it sure (laughs) it's just (laughs) part of the fun right
3: i had one in in my neighborhood today so it was quite interesting that you mentioned that because uh we've had they're they're coming out at this time of the season and uh uh they're everywhere we've had numerous incidents of uh People running into them and being mauled and oh, wow. chased away, and it's it. They're everywhere. That, them and the moose.
0: Well, because you you guys have you know in some ways we're we're very close neighbors because I'm in Canada, but uh, the other side of Canada, and where we have black bears, you know, walking into grocery stores because now they have automatic doors, of course, um, or whatever. You guys have grizzly bears over there, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, there was just a, a brown bear encounter recently where uh, some people in a in a residential area in Eagle River—it's kind of a sister community to Anchorage—were hiking, and three teenagers were put in the hospital because they walked up on a sow and, and a couple of cubs.
0: Oh boy.
3: Uh, yeah, but we have black bears too. Yeah. You know,
2: moose. I mean, the the black bears are just kind of like big dogs.
0: They're, they're right. The exactly. Yeah.
2: They cause problems a lot of times. Yeah. So, what about the Kodiak bear? uh it's just a different s- brown bears and grizzly bears are kind of the same animal. It just depends on where they live and what they eat. The Kodiak are the largest on average in the world as far as the yeah they're the, the, they're, size the
3: they they they're the biggest and the baddest yeah. other,
2: other than the polar bears but yeah
1: so see jason i'm I'm the Kodiak bear of
0: the human race. <laughs> <laughs> You're the bear in this I relationship. To, I have
1: to help Jason with analogies. That's that's why.
0: <laughs> I don't know if you did a good job on that one. Um, <laughs> so, guys, what what was it that made you guys fall in love with aviation? It sounds like you you it goes right back to childhood for both of you because uh, of where you live. So, uh, what was it for for both of you?
3: Well, uh, this is John. Uh, I, I first got my interest uh, very early in elementary school. And, uh, I think it was probably first grade when I um, they let us into the library, and I discovered the 900 section, which was history, and then I found the aviation history section of it, and I was just hooked at that point. And, uh, you know, there's a marvelous series, Time Life, put out, and it just covered the whole history of aviation up to that point, and of course now that's that's close to 50 years mm-hmm. in time. So, you know, think of what what has happened since then. It's it's just volumes and volumes and volumes of all this marvelous technology that has um, developed over the years. And it's just fascinating to – and the people that fly, the pilots and the air crew and the, the people that maintain the
2: airplanes, they're all just fascinating people. They all have great stories behind it. Uh, With me, it was, uh, you know, my dad was in the Air Force, and we came up to Alaska in 1967 when I was seven years old and lived on Elmendorf back before it was a joint base with Fort Richardson and the Army base. And uh, so that was the environment we grew up in and and got to watch the kind of the progression of the different aircraft as they were developed. When we first got up here, they were flying F-102s and F-106s and— and uh, C-141s, and, and then you know, there was kind of a progression there where it went to F-4s and then F-15s and now F-22s, so. You yeah, know, the Herx, Herx were there the entire time. Yeah, too. yeah, so. and still are. And, uh, and uh, so we were, I was surrounded by it, and I, of course, did, one of our places that we played was on a, a kind of a recreational area that's right next to the airport there on Elmendorf, and so it was, that was part of our playground.
0: Yeah, it's it's so cool to be able to to hear how much aviation played a part not only in your culture but just in in your growing up. Um, guys, tell us about the art of Alaska.
2: The art of Alaska is basically John and I are, are we've been friends for decades. We've uh, worked together in our day jobs, and we both just happen to have the same passion for aviation and aviation art and um, so the the art of alaska is just the kind of the umbrella company that i formed just to, to market ourselves so we're independent artists but we do most everything together we have a little bit different style and a little bit different interest mine tends more towards civil aviation and commercial aviation and john's you know has a real passion for history and military and uh, so that was just, a, you know, we, we feel like we're better together. We enjoy doing it. And uh, it's just been beneficial for us to, to handle it this way. We A lot of people would think that we would be kind of natural competitors, but we don't really see it that way. We, we like working together. Yeah, we, we kind of, we work
3: on, we don't compete. We work on different areas of, of interest. So mm-hmm. um like Bob said, I'm a little bit more into the the history side of it, but it's it's, it's not just the military; it's the early bush pilots, um, early airlines, and uh, I really love the period of time in the in the fifties and sixties in the military and the airliners because um, all the airplanes they they flew, both the the airlines and the military, just gleaming metal with these just bright gaudy paint schemes on them, on them, and it was. It, it's just wonderful. It was like they were just flying billboards, and uh, just that period of, of time when um, you know aviation was just taking off and just opening up the world to um, to everybody, and
2: it, it was just wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'd say another thing too is that we would just work well together as as far as you know we we offer each other advice we ask advice you know what do you think of this we critique each other sometimes and it's just it's a good balance
0: yeah very cool uh what what would be some of the uh highlights that you could share uh with your your artwork i know that you've both of you have had artwork that you've worked on together and separately if i'm not mistaken that that have been featured in various uh areas of uh not only your uh home state but around the world
3: Um, I've um, had a number of paintings uh, selected for uh, several national shows uh, juried artwork uh, competitions and been fortunate been fortunate enough to um, actually not win a category, but I, I got a third place <laughs> one time. <laughs> Which, uh, let's rephrase that. Um, been fortunate enough to be selected for uh, national shows with the uh, American Society of Aviation Artists and uh, CAE flight used to uh, host a juried art competition and uh, managed to uh, place. Highly in 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 both of those, so that that's about um, you know the best that I've done nationally. But it's nice to get the national recognition. So
0: yeah, for sure.
2: We uh, I guess we don't really think about that too often. We just it, it, it's a it's all enjoyable. I mean, but but as far as a few of those places, you know, I have one of the pieces that I did. It's an Alaska Airlines 737-800 that's on display at the Alaska Airlines company store in SeaTac. Uh, we've got a, a number of things that are on the walls of uh, the offices of the, the Navigation Services Senior Management Team for the FAA in Washington, D.C. Uh, John's got commissioned work for Air Force squadrons in Alaska, Virginia, Nevada, Japan. Um, we've done a lot of corporate commissions for uh, mostly Alaska-based, but um,
3: John, you've got. Yeah, regional, too. I've, I've got uh, some commission pieces down uh, for a squadron down at uh, Nellis Air Force Base down in Las Vegas. That was uh, um, commissioned by um, a couple of leading aerospace firms. Um, of course, my, my, my best friends are the uh, F-22 pilots that I've got that I'm associated with right now and in doing a number of work for a um, hundred year anniversary that's coming up for these guys in, uh, uh early August. So that squadron nice. has been around for a hundred years and that's in, in inconsistent service. One of the, one of the only two or three squadrons that can, that can lay claim to that. So it's the 90th fire squadron. Mark oh,
0: yeah. would know more about that than I would.
3: Yeah, they got their start in World War One, and it uh, um, just fascinating doing the research for this this project. It's gonna be it's it's seven paintings that I'm putting together, and each one is uh, covering a different segment of their history. So, uh, doing the research for the various airplanes and the various people that flew them is uh, that's that's what I really like to do. So I spend half the time of a painting is doing the research. So
1: what did the squadron start off with? 100s, 101s, 102s? Uh back in 1917?
3: No, they oh, actually No, fl- no, 17, okay. Yeah, 1917, World War 1. Um they were flying a French built aircraft. It was called a Sampson SA2, which is a very uh unique airplane and not very well known to most uh most people that associate uh World War One with, uh, Sopwith with camels and the, you know the Red Baron flying a, a, a triplane. Yeah. yeah, I was afraid to mention that word because I'd screw it up and. <laughs> <just for laughs> an
0: <hour. laughs> Mark's not afraid of that. No, it doesn't bother me. Oh, well,
3: you did it right, so.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mark, have you heard of Live Flight for Infinite Flight?
1: Yeah, man. I've used it to track flights and to see which regions and airports are busy before, you know, planning my flight.
0: Right. Well, as you probably know, a new version of Live Flight is now available at liveflightapp.com. This new version is better than ever and has been rebuilt from the ground up. With a new design, more flight stats, a search feature, and airport information, tracking and planning your flight is easier than ever.
1: Oh man, I know. And now with the new downloadable KML files, you can download your flight data to any Earth browser such as Google Earth. It's so cool.
0: Absolutely. And if that wasn't enough, you can now subscribe to Live Flight Horizon, a new service for only $1.99 a month that provides real-time, worldwide airport information such as weather, runway data, and charts. It also allows you to search for flights, active ATC frequencies, and airports. And as a Live Flight Horizon subscriber, you'll also get much longer online sessions, and you'll be helping Cam to keep developing and improving this great app.
1: So, guys, make sure you head over to liveflightapp.com to give it a try and also subscribe to Live Flight Horizon. It will make your infinite flight experience so much
0: better. Live Flight is now available in the App Store for iOS. And now back to the podcast. John, Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Great Alaskan—no, I'm going to mess it up—the Great Alaska Aviation Gathering. What is that?
3: Well, that is a a trade show that is uh, put on by the Alaska Airmen's Association. And uh, Alaska Airmen's is made up of 2,000 members, over 2,000 members, and uh, they're— an advocate for general aviation in Alaska, and most of the pilots up here are members of that. And 20 years ago, they um, came up with this idea of putting together a show that would bring uh, vendors from outside and provide a, uh, a place where pilots can interact with uh, the, the vendors and the suppliers for, you know, bring, seeing what's new and and connecting people with, uh, you know, mechanics and airframe rebuilders and avionics guys, and, you know, it's just a start off kind of a just a symposium, but it's grown over the past 20 years to uh, be one of the biggest events in in the nation for its type of show. Um, You know, there's 27,000 people that go through – the doors over a weekend and end of April, I think, beginning of May, yeah, yeah. So it's huge, and there's there's two hundred national and regional vendors that are that are there, and it's just a, uh, you know, it's a safety is a big part of it. There's safety symposiums, um, the FAA gets involved and is trying to keep people updated on their latest regulations. Uh, um, so it's just a a really interesting, intense. A collection of people that gather and exchange ideas and uh, find out what's happening, what's what's new in the aviation world. Uh, a lot of the vendors are here. All the national vendors, people like Cessna, roll out their new products, um, and and they're right next to a guy that's a a Cub rebuilder. So it's just kind of this really neat collection of high end, high tech. What's new stuff combined with what? What can I get for my airplane that's sixty years old? You know, it's bush right. tires, and you know, people are selling skis and floats. And
0: is this also uh, a fly-in?
2: No, no, not so much because there's. It's held at Anchorage International Airport at the FedEx. Yeah. Uh, uh, maintenance hangar oh, okay. so there's 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 not really the, the logistics would be a problem for something like that it's yeah. mostly the you know people that have come up for the show and then the the anchorage population and people come in from all over alaska and they'll fly into anchorage and then and then come in but it's not light site specific for the fly-in itself yeah there's a, a very large uh, static display area yeah. where people um
3: will be um if if, we, if they've got an airplane to sail or for yeah. sale and uh they can do that or say like Cessna wants to highlight the, the latest two Oh two Oh eight or, uh, you know, they'll park that airplane there and use it as a, as a sales tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a big military contingent that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they bring the
2: airplanes over from, uh, from Elmendorf and, uh, and sometimes the Alaska wing of the Commemorative Air Force will have a display there of old warbirds. Yeah.
3: And- yeah, and it's it's held at the FedEx hangar out at Anchorage International Airport, and uh, FedEx and their their cohorts over there uh, at UPS will they'll bring over several airplanes and open them up uh, for people to walk through, and um, it's it's just generally a really fun time. It's it's early in the year; it's spring. Uh, people aren't yet flying their, uh, they're not on floats yet. Yeah. So they're, uh, you know, it's kind of a dead weekend for the pilots. So it's a really good time.
2: And it's also a marvelous tool for the aviation industry to, to be open to the public and to expose people to it. Because even in a place like Alaska, you know, there's always the interest of, you know, getting kids in early and teaching them about aviation and, and educating people about how important aviation is to Alaska and historically and, and present day too.
1: Does exactly. FedEx fly um do they fly uh, a lot of 208s uh out of Anchorage or I'm around con- Alaska?
2: There's it's contracts the companies that fly yeah. for FedEx, yeah. A yeah, friend of mine there that. are
3: a couple of actual FedEx yeah. airplanes,
2: yes. Yeah, I have a friend that flies 208s for them.
3: They're like just uh, little regional feeders from it's like some of the smaller towns like Kenai and Soldotna will uh, will feed into Anchorage. Right. Um, but you know FedEx has got uh, two hundred pilots up here. Or, or shoot, wow. that might be UPS. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one it is actually. But one of one of those, uh, it's it's a regional hub for both UPS and FedEx. But um, I think it might be UPS actually. It actually has two
2: hundred pilots um, uh, based here in Anchorage. Yeah, well, that kind of goes along with a stat too that a lot of people aren't aware of is that for and this is a little off topic, but but Anchorage International Airport is the number two cargo hub in the nation and the fourth in the world, and that's oh, for wow. cargo for cargo throughput. And so there's it, yeah, you know, I knew you it was did, a
1: large cargo hub. I didn't know it was ranked number two. It's
2: that's two uh, in the nation, fourth in the world. Yeah. And, wow, and, and, and it, it just shows you the, the cross-section of it here, too, because we also have the largest seaplane base in the world. Even Merrill Field, which is not a very large airport, has over 100,000 operations a year and 800 small aircraft there. And it, it's—our it's, it, our airplanes are like your cars there.
3: Yeah, I mean, you, you combine the activities at the Anchorage International Airport along with Lake Hood, which is the largest seaplane base in the world— combined with Merrill Field, and just hop, skip, and a jump away is Ellendorf Air Force Base. And you combine all
2: that aviation activity, it's it's one of the busiest places in the world. And you, uh, you'll probably hear some aircraft noise during the recording here because we, we, we've lived here for so long and we're so used to it that when you hear an airplane fly overhead, you don't really think oh what's that it's just your mind thinks what kind is it because there's the military base there's commercial traffic and private traffic and it's it's just a constant thing it's just we don't even think about it when we hear it because it's so constant Hmm.
1: very cool yeah we have uh on infinite flight we're working on a major update which is global um and it you know basically opening up the entire world um, airports all around the world and anchorage um is one of the ones that uh, I fly out of a lot or into, and um I think I've flown in um let' me see I, there's so many smaller fields I can't remember all the names of them, but I like to fly uh I like to fly around Alaska in the two o eight um mm-hmm. just you know exploring new different areas in the sims, so uh it's definitely a beautiful country that's for sure, it sure
2: is
3: <clears throat> John. Yeah, and there's so i mean you can you can fly forever and not. You won't see you, you won't see a dwelling there's just these vast expanses of of wilderness and it's still like that I mean it it used to be like those early bush pilots i mean they it' fly for hours you know and the, the only thing they had was like a miner wanted to take them into a mine and the miner had never flown and the world looks totally different from you know he was used to going in out by foot and uh on trails, but you can't, you can't see those from a plane. So the miner would get lost. The pilot had no idea where they were going. So they'd end up coming back. And, uh, so you'd have to sit down and noodle out. Okay. Here's a landmark here. We need to, we need to cross that river at, at the bend here. Um, and then you go up the valley and up on, uh, you know, a quarter mile up, you'll find a, a, a hut or a small collection of buildings. And that, and that's the mine but if, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. So,
1: right. But that's one thing that Dion has done is that he's really depicted the natural beauty of Alaska through his photography. And it's just absolutely stunning.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We're really fortunate. We've both been up here uh, for over 50 years and you know, it, it never gets old. It, it, it's just spectacular. Even in the winter, it is beautiful. It can be really cold, and you can get really tired of the, of the cold and the darkness, but
2: during the day, uh, Alaska is just spectacular. It's new every year. But John and I just by coincidence both wound up coming to Alaska in September of 1967, and uh, so this September actually marks 50 years for each of us in here. But but but, looking at it from the, the bush pilot's perspective that John was talking about you know, my father in law was he 's half German and half native and when his father came to Alaska, um, he was actually in Seattle and he heard about the gold rush and his plans were to go to Australia to learn to earn his fortune. He was sixteen years old, and he heard about the gold rush in the Yukon and he walked to Alaska, took a couple of boats, but he walked most of the way and he did the whole the Chilkoot Trail and, and Skagway and the White Pass and everything that they did when they a lot of people went there to make their fortune. And he wound up settling here near Anchorage across the inlet at a place called Alexander Creek. And for him, the start of it was he was 18 years old and he was running his 30-mile trap line by dog team, and he heard a noise. And, and as he's sweating running behind the dogs, he hears an airplane fly overhead and looks up and he thinks, that's going to be me. And that was in oh, 1945, wow. I believe. And so he came to Anchorage, and he bought an airplane, and they, the guy walked him around the airplane, showed him a pre-flight checklist, put him inside in the front seat, and and uh, told him how to, to take off, took him through some turns and and spins and stalls and things, and told him how to land and came back. And he they climbed out, and he shook his hand and said, congratulations, you're a pilot.
0: Get out of here.
2: And then he... He was smart enough to know because he lived, he grew up in the bush and he was smart enough to understand that, no, I'm not. So he, he spent a lot of years teaching himself how to fly. He taught himself instruments by going up on overcast days in areas that he knew and he'd pop up in the clouds and fly around for a while and come down and see if he, thought, if he was where he thought he was supposed oh, to be. And, That's but, but wild. They, it, but they were, uh, you know, they were the, the ones that survived were just the true pioneers because they understood what it took to survive, how dangerous it was, and, and the conditions they fl- were, were flying in were just incredible. You, most people can't even relate to the, the, the situations that they'd find themselves in. Yeah, those the, the early bush pilots, their their first customers were
3: miners and trappers, and uh, you know one of their sales points, and it's kind of a catchphrase for them. But they would they would tell these guys, well, you can you can walk a week. Or you can fly an hour, and so I mean these guys are used to bushwhacking through the woods, and I mean they knew what they were what they were having to do to just to get from point A to point B, and, and carry supplies on their back, and they'd have to do this three or four times. Well, they saw the the advantage of aviation really quick. It's like okay, that that cuts my time right there, and it. it It allows me to work my my claim my mining claim or uh run my my trap line gives me another another week of of production so
2: um you know the that that's kind of what got aviation started up here Mm -hmm. and the other aspect of that too was that the bush pilots really earned uh, a really high status in the eyes of a lot of the smaller communities too especially the native villages and my father-in-law, being half-native, he had a real close connection with these. And there was lots of occasions where they were flying. I mean, there was no such thing as medevacs back then, but if somebody would get you know, injured badly or something and had to come to town, that was the only way to get them quickly enough to, to help them. And, and my father-in-law has one story where there was a small village that I I, I want to say it was maybe smallpox or something, but the entire village was was stricken with this, this illness, and they were all dying. And... Uh, they, he had flown in to, to meet with them, and they said, you know, we need medical supplies, we need this and that. And he said, I'll do what I can, and he flew out. And I, I don't know the particulars, um, but, but he had to basically fly back and let them know that this wasn't available, these people weren't available, and basically just say, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I tried, but I, I couldn't help, you know. And, and this village elder just looked at him, shook his hand, looked him in the eye and said, thank you for trying. And then, and then he had to leave, and that village died. And that's the kind of things that they were involved with too. It wasn't always just you know bringing in the pilot bread and crack you know uh, spam and things for the villages it, you know or or individuals that had cabins for whatever reason. It was a lot of lifeline really. You yeah, know, the mercy to, to the bush. Flights, the mercy flights yeah.
3: grabbed a lot of the headlines uh, in the late twenties and and into the thirties, and uh, we, you know these pilots were flying. There's a good chance that the pilots weren't going to come back either on some of these flights. The, uh, the first flight north of the Brooks Range, which is up on the north slope of Alaska in the winter, was performed by uh, uh, a pilot named Joe Cross, and he's a very famous bush pilot. Um, but it was dead of winter. It was 45 below in Fairbanks when he took off. Um, there was very little daylight at that time of the year. And so he's flying pretty much in the dark into an area that he did not have a map. He only he was only at general directions as far as a compass heading. Uh, no radio contact. He was an airplane that it's covered with fabric. He was bundled up in furs. he's carrying diphtheria serum with him. And he's trying to keep that warm. And he was flying in, into uh, Point Barrow and uh, managed to land, find the place, and saved everybody, because it's like Bob was saying, if he didn't make the flight, everybody was going to die. And there's a good chance that he was going to die, but, you know, that's, it never even entered their thoughts. It was like, they just did it.
0: Well, that's that's the really interesting part and amazing part about this story, is that normally, you know, when we have, especially someone like Dion, as you could hear in his Uh, episode and as he told his stories it was a lot about adventure but a lot about safety and he said even as he's making these treks from coast to coast really safety is the most important thing you know you know your limits Um, I had some uh, kit plane guys here in my dining room uh, to record a podcast episode uh, some local guys and again over and over safety is stressed but when you talk about these you know indigenous communities um the pilot's safety level isn't put at a high priority because of what's at stake right and what's uh you know the mission that they're trying to accomplish
2: yeah well they were the ones that were in charge and they they knew their airplanes the ones that made it through all these these experiences and not all of them did but you know, they, they would just take a typical winter day. It might be 50 below somewhere, and they're flying a reciprocating engine. So when they land, if they're going to be there for long enough to shut the motor off, the first thing they do is drain the oil, put it in a can, and bring it inside the the building with them wherever they're going. And when they come back out, they put the warm oil back into the engine because, you know, the, the heat the, the heat dissipates so quickly at temperatures like that. Oh, wow. Uh, that, that when they came back, the, the oil would be like...
3: Yeah, Clue. and and think about these guys are flying in an open cockpit biplane, and uh, you know it's forty five below on the ground. It's, yeah, it's ambient like six, ambient temperature. It's sixty below at altitude, with and they are flying probably at hundred miles an hour, with nothing but you know a couple of furs and a, a traditional flying hat and goggles. I mean those guys, they they were frostbit. And, you know, you're in a a fabric covered airplane. There's no heat in there, so I mean, these guys were bundled up in uh, uh, furs, and uh, they got a lot of their clothing from uh, from the natives. And uh, you know, they could barely move in these airplanes. So it was oh, pretty, man. it was pretty intense.
0: Yeah, you it, know, it makes it, my complaining about roofing for a day really seem silly.
3: <laughs> well and the other thing interesting about the bush pilots is you know it wasn't a question of if they were going to go down it was just a matter of how many times and where where they would go down would they be able to survive it um could they patch an airplane back together or, or somehow i mean that, that's where all the bailing wire comes from everybody carried a, a, a roll of bailing wire just to try to Get an airplane back into condition where they could take off and try to make it back home. Um, you know, the mechanical failures were um, what wasn't the fault of any of a mechanic or anything else. It's just that the, the equipment at that time had a failure rate and it was put in, in an environment that it really wasn't made to operate in. So, you know Every one of those pilots had to be an expert mechanic and he had to be, uh, how to know how to survive in the wild. And a lot of them spent a lot of time walking out, you know, for two weeks. People would disappear for two weeks and nobody, nobody knew where they went down. They knew they were gone, but that's about it. Wow. And then a lot of them never made it out either. And that's, that's, there's a lot of stories that,
2: we'll never hear about because the guys just never made it back and that still continues this state is so vast that there's still you know when p- pilots go missing p- airplanes go missing they there is no guarantee that they're going to be found i know a couple of people personally that have, that have you know been on like a looking for doing a scouting trip for sheep hunting or goat hunt that they were going to do the following week and and were never found right um, yeah it, and earlier you asked the question of you know um
3: why we're not pilots and we both know people that um, haven't made it back and and I know that if I'm going to do something like that in an endeavor of of being a pilot you got to be all in and you've got to uh, you got to be incredibly proficient and you have to be on top of your game all the time
2: and you know it's not a good idea a of- to be a, a weekend pilot and just yeah, fly. You know, and a lot of times, every month you can be or two, the best pilot in the world. But the, up here,
3: there's going to be weather circumstances that you're not going to be prepared for, or they come out of nowhere, and or, you know, terrain issues. Flying into terrain is is a big deal up here because uh, because of the weather, and uh, and sometimes there's a lot of poor decisions made by pilots too.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. Speaking of that, too, um, I want to put a little plug in for um, Flight Chops. Steve was a guest on FlightCast at one point, and right now he's doing a two-part series on surviving with only what's in your emergency kit. Um, So he's gone out into the Canadian wilderness with a group of aviators to simulate uh, spending a night in... Uh, I would say there's snow, but they're in the mountains. So it's not f- really, really super cold, but they need to get a shelter up and make make a fire and so on. But you're only using what's uh, on your body and uh, in your emergency kit and what people find and I'm only on part one because he hasn't released the other part yet, is that they're not as prepared as they thought they were. And it can even be something as simple as the shoes that you're wearing. Uh, you know, going flying in flip-flops, for example, when you're flying, uh, what should be maybe a 15 minute flight, um, but there's a lot of area in that 15 minutes and things could go wrong.
2: Yeah. uh, Particularly here Alaska is a place where the population centers are very specific. I mean, there are lots of places where you'll fly over and you'll be passing cabins and things like that, but flying out of anchor, it's a city of 300,000 people. But as soon as you uh, get out of the controlled airspace of Anchorage International Airport, um, you're over wilderness. You may be able to see Anchorage, but if you have a problem there, you're still pretty far away from from uh, help. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, yeah. I'm a big, avid fan of survival stories. I like to read the books and everything, and, and I've been here a long time and spent a lot of time out in the woods, and, and and the one constant in all the stories is that the first thing that happens is you get separated from your gear. in in almost every situation so really the most important thing you can have is your wits and experience and and know what to do and what not to do and kind of like my father-in-law always says you know it's just being a good pilot has not as much to do with being able to fly the airplane as it does knowing when and when not to fly and uh, you know and, and they definitely especially those those old timers and those those in the new guys too, the really super qualified bush pilots they they do know their limits and they know what's safe. sometimes there's situations that demand that you push the rules, especially when it's to save somebody and, and those situations happen fairly regularly unfortunately,
0: you know yeah, you know as I read your your bio, both of you, and as you as I listen to you talk, it sounds as Mark and I already know that um not only is the aviation world a small a small community um, the, you know, you start making connections that, oh, you know, we, we know Dion, we've talked to him and, and he'd been on the podcast and you guys know him. And, um, it it really is all about community. And that's what I'm hearing from you guys. And speaking of that, um, Bob, can you quickly tell us about the, uh, Merrill Field massacre? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it's, which isn't quite as bad as it sounds from the name. No, I'm not sure that was ever an
2: <laughs> official name, but I, I saw it getting used quite a bit. And so I, I would start by just continuing what you were talking about by talking about the sense of community. I mean, uh, it is a really tight-knit community here, and a lot of the people know each other. And, uh, it, you know, I mentioned the 150 that we had. Well, one morning I came into work, and uh, when I started up the computer, you know, Facebook mysteriously appeared on my screen. And uh, there was a mention that there had been uh, some vandalism done at Merrill Field, which is in downtown Anchorage. Uh, they've got three strips there between two and 4,000 feet, and there's probably 800 aircraft there. Um, along the southern edge, there's a, a big gravel strip and a whole bunch of tail draggers and airplanes on bush wheels, you know, Super Cubs and Taylor Craft and Satabrias and Cessnas and everything. And, uh, and there had been uh, some vandalism done the night before, and it was... Probably the worst case of vandalism that anybody that I knew had ever heard of anywhere. Somebody had gone through the night before and slashed the tires of 87 aircraft.
0: Oh my goodness! Uh,
2: and you know, a lot of these airplanes were running Alaska bush wheels. You know, the big tundra tires that go for three, 000, four thousand dollars a set and it would have taken hours for them to do this so it was it made a lot of big news and well when i saw this i ran over there to, to check check our airplane and, and it was parked in the the north parking area so we were okay but just going through that was just it was nauseating it was almost like seeing uh uh like a, a large-scale event of animal poaching of wildlife or something it was just sickening to see all these airplanes sitting there with flat tires and slack tie-down ropes and so, I came back to the office and I noticed right away, within probably an hour or so of the news breaking, that there were people that were saying, Hey, I, I got some extra tires if anybody needs some. And, and I started noticing a couple of these and I thought, you know, this needs a place to happen. So, I started a Facebook group and called it the Alaska Aviators Resource and let, got on the other Facebook pages and groups and said, Hey, if you guys are in this situation, Let's coordinate it here, and let's see if we can help these people, you know. And by the end of the day, I think there was 200 people, members of the of the group oh, and wow. just grew from there. And that was just so inspiring. I get goosebumps just thinking about it now, you know. Right away, people started saying, hey, I just put my my – 180 on floats and i got a set of bush wheels if you want to use them they're yours for the summer or until you can get new tires and that was happening over and over and over again those guys that had some you know a and p experience that were saying i've got the tools i've got the time if you need help switching yours over let me know uh it, it traveled statewide pretty quickly and we had uh some of the flight schools in Fairbanks and down on the Kenai Peninsula that were offering their tires that they had just in a shack somewhere that were kind of timed out for commercial use. They said, I've got, you know, like six sets of eight fifties and I've got these and these they're free. If you want them, let me know and I'll bring them to Anchorage. Um, A Vemco insurance waived the uh, deductible for anybody that was a victim of of that attack and just on and on, you know, Uh, it was, it was just a wonderful, uh, you kind of manifestation of, of how close the, the aviation community is up here. And, uh, it was, it was really inspiring to
0: awesome. see. Uh, guys, I have a feeling we could chat all evening. Um, but sadly we have to wrap this up. So before we do that, is there anything that you guys want to plug anything you want to make our listeners aware of before we let you go?
2: Sure. If you're, uh, you're lovers of aviation art, um, we have a website. It's uh, the art of uh, you can also see our work at uh, Facebook.com/slash, the Art of Alaska, and uh, on Instagram it's just Art of Alaska. But uh, it was a pleasure uh, chatting with you guys, and thanks for inviting us.
1: Yeah, we appreciate you guys being here. Um, I, I do have one request though. Now your work is phenomenal. Hey, Thank I'm you. I'm probably a bit of a very uh, novice intro artist i I do more sketch work than anything else um painting it, it give me something with lines and numbers in them, and i 'll know what to paint but painting i just can't <laughs> do um but sketch you know sketch work is i i've done that since like you guys said you know at a very young age um but your your work is absolutely beautiful the request that I have, I've only seen one painting that depicts the Coast Guard. And
2: that was in a uh, SAR painting. We have a very long list of requests and we try to accommodate, but you know how many different... Well, I need to be moved to the top of that (laughs) list is what I'm saying.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, you know, that painting you're talking about, uh, it was a a painting that was done for the... uh, Uh, Great Alaska Aviation Gathering, and that was to um, help portray the work that's done by the rescue coordination services and and how much they mean to just the the average aviator up here. And uh, so we have uh, an air guard unit that is pretty well known as being the best in the business up here. And uh, they cover... A certain part of the state, and the Coasties cover another part of the state, and where they overlap, there's a lot of a lot of competition there. So uh, it was interesting. All the Air Air Guard guys say, "What's that? What's What's that Coastie airplane in there?" He said, "Get rid of that. There, there's no way they can't do that. They're, they're, you know, we wouldn't even show up if they were there. You know, it was like they don't know what they're doing." And then the coasties are going. How can we're just a smaller one in the background? He says we do the bulk of the work here. <laughs> so, just the the rivalry and the competition between them was uh, quite interesting. They Each That's have a each decor that is uh, in, or embedded uh, quite deeply. I
0: well, can imagine. Uh, I, I'm sure, Mark, that they're going to bump you right up to the top of the list. I'm penciling yeah. you in, right? <laughs> and of course, you know he wants to see the C-130. Yeah,
3: and you well, know what? We'll be happy to do that for you if uh, you know we we do commission work.
0: <laughs> you know you what he's telling what, you, Mark? Now? He okay. they commission work. He wants you to buy it.
1: Oh well, that was the plan.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. Oh, that was
1: definitely okay. the plan. Okay. okay. Plus. Okay. Plus I've got some contacts in Kodiak now. I could probably get uh I could probably get uh you know some uh more purchases for you now. Um, you know, if it's got a Jayhawk in it and a one thirty. Yeah,
0: you're saying, okay.
1: you know, uh-huh. I I I'm giving you the ideas here. Uh <clears throat> I'm giving you those ideas and then I can take that and, you know, maybe market that with a few of my Kodiak contacts and uh, they could talk to the guys in Sitka
0: and over in Anchorage, and yeah,
1: yeah, you know, it's it's we'll work together on that for sure.
0: Well, I can oh. see a, I can see a, a Coast Guard painting up on the wall in in uh, their future.
2: Well, that would be actually a wonderful thing because I I gotta say that, that when we do the commission work, that's one of the, our favorite things to do. Not just because of the the money, but of course, but uh, because that's where we get the closest to the people that we're we're creating this artwork for, and hearing people's stories, and and uh, it, that's a real rewarding part of it is is just being able to kind of share in that, you know, hearing the the close calls that they had, and and just the description of the way their work is, and, and to see them too, they're so involved and so they such a so passionate about it, you know.
3: Yeah, and especially the rescue yeah. units, they, they are so. They are so passionate about the mission. They, I mean, they are just all in. It doesn't matter. I mean, those, they hearken back to those early Bush pilots during their Mercy flights. If there's any way possible to help somebody out, uh, rescue somebody, find somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, you, we had, we, they had some people that were uh, on an ice field that were snowed in. And they had eight feet of snow on top of their tent, and they they, they were invisible, except for just a tiny portion of the of of tent that they had poked through, and it was like just a speck of orange in this sea of white. and uh, these guys homed in on a on a cell uh, cell phone signal, and they got close, they got to within 60 feet, but they still couldn't see these people, so they knew they were there. And uh, they, they kept at it, and uh, eventually they got them out. Otherwise, those people would be entombed in an ice field. And it, I mean, it's just horrendous weather conditions, whiteout. And uh, they are flying up in the mountains under an ice field looking for a, almost an invisible, you know, it's the proverbial needle in a haystack. And they were able to, to accomplish it, so.
1: Sounds like, Jay, that, that if, If I get the opportunity to go flying in Alaska, that whoever I'm flying with, uh, or even if I'm just flying by myself, I'm probably going to have to get me an international orange, hunter orange parka. So I will
0: be (laughs) highly visible. (laughs) And Uh, I just have to stand anywhere in your general vicinity and we'd both be okay.
3: Yeah. You should be wearing a survival vest and yeah.
0: Yeah all right guys uh with that we are going to let you go but thank you so much for making time for us uh john and bob
3: thank you very much appreciate your time
1: yeah. yes thank you. It's our appreciate pleasure. you guys being here keep Every- up the great work guys really it's beautiful work
3: thank thanks mark thanks appreciate mark it.
1: thank you jason
0: everyone don't forget to check out flycast cafe for bonus content from this and other episodes and please go ahead and check out theartofalaska.net Thanks for listening. Be sure to download Infinite Flight from the App Store or Google Play. For more of the podcast, visit flightcast.audio and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or YouTube. You can find us on social media at FlightCast Audio. FlightCast is brought to you by LinkHouse Media on the web at linkhousemedia.com. To cover the fine print, FlightCast is not affiliated with Infinite Flight or Flying Development Studio. I'm Jason Rosewell. With me is Skyhawk Heavy. Thanks for listening and happy landings.